You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 13th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, our US editor Chris Lord is here in London to unpack some of the big stories making headlines across the pond. What have you got for us, Chris? So as Sam Bankman-Fried is arrested in the Bahamas, I'll be talking about whether America can wean itself off crypto in the years ahead. More from Chris later. We'll also be in Zurich to review the day's newspapers and Victoria Scholar will put us in the business picture. Plus, we'll also be getting a wrap of what you need to know in design this week, courtesy of the, it says here, one and only Nick Manise. What's caught your eye, Nick? Well, Tom, we're going to be talking through, and I hope you can hear some audio there, the Alpino edition, which is Monocle's winter newspaper and the design stories in there. All that and more ahead here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. The founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has been arrested in the Bahamas after the US filed criminal charges against him. Sam Bankman-Fried is scheduled to appear in court today and faces extradition back to the US. FTX filed for bankruptcy after crashing last month. The company is reported to owe its 50 largest creditors more than $3 billion. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome here to the studio Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, here with us for the holiday season and to cast a critical eye over this story. Um, Chris, and I know there's some interesting aspects to this, uh, which we'll we'll come on to, but just reactions, first of all, to this. I guess it was kind of telegraphed that this was on the way, wasn't it? It was telegraphed, but obviously in the last few weeks since the collapse of FTX, you've had this amazing situation where Sam Bankman-Fried has gone round the various news broadcasters, uh, newspapers and so on, giving these long interviews about how we've got to this point. And so he's had a lot of time to say his piece, if you will, in terms of trying to explain himself and, uh, and try and justify how things got as bad as they did. But then, you know, yesterday in the uh, around six o'clock local time in Nassau in Bahamas, he was arrested, as you mentioned, at the request of US prosecutors. And now the expectation is they're going to seek extradition for him. He's probably going to try and fight that, I imagine, uh, because he knows there's going to be some real cards stacked against him, I would say. Um, but also, it's an extraordinary pre- precipitous fall for this exchange. Just to recap a little bit on what happened here, FTX was, if you will, a web of about 100 companies, uh, small companies that all became part of ultimately what was an exchange for cryptocurrency. So they allowed the buying and selling of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on. Now, at a certain point, as you mentioned, huge amounts of money were going through it. You know, he had a fortune at one point of $16 billion. Huge amounts of money. He's now got zero because they filed for bankruptcy. Well, so, so he says. <laughs> so he says. As much as he's been revealed, and of course, in the next few weeks, we're going to see that be uh, that envelope be opened and really explore his finances. But essentially, just, just to put a point on what caused the collapse of, of, of FTX was this. They essentially started to sell, if you will, F, what they called FTTs, tokens of themselves. They were almost like buying shares, selling shares of themselves. The problem is, those shares essentially were IOUs. They said to investors, if you buy these from us, we promise to pay you back from our profits later down, down the line. And of course, then once they had all those FTTs, they then started seeking very, very risky loans off the back of these IOUs, if you will. And so, of course... The problem is <laughs> when that starts to go wrong, then there's no there's no grounding for it. There's no basis for it. And if you will, for anyone who's a you know critic of crypto, which I have been in, uh, throughout this whole thing, it really encapsulates the problem of crypto. It was, it, if you will, it was always it was always hedged 
on promises. And now, unfortunately, now we see with Bankman Freed, those promises, when they don't come true, cause precipitous losses of, of money and faith, if you will, in this system. Chris, one thing I find really interesting is something that we've chatted a little bit about, and I thought you could expand on this. Obviously, mm. you've been in the US now for quite quite some time. Really interesting observation about the way that um, certain demographies, certain geographies, certain places you've been that have really kind of thrown their lot in with crypto as a movement, as this sort of new, almost sort of financial ideology in a, in a way. Tell me a bit about that. And how, how marked is the contrast, different markets, different places, different cities indeed in the US on your beat that mm. has sort of engaged with crypto in a different way? I was amazed when I moved to the US in December last year. I was amazed at how soaked in crypto the country was. Within months, I was at Freeze uh, in Los Angeles, the big art fair there. Everywhere you turned, there were gallerists saying there's new collectors here I've never heard of before who were arriving with vast sums of money and buying in cash quite often some of the artworks for huge hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars. And a lot of that were new, a lot of those people were new crypto millionaires or, or very wealthy people who suddenly made a lot of money off this. Extraordinary numbers. I think the number is about 12% of all Americans in some capacity have invested in crypto. That's a huge amount. That's a huge proportion of the population. Now, what has been interesting, and this spells a sort of real backlash, if you will, down the line for something like FTX and the collapse of it, is that cities got very involved in crypto. So Miami uh, launched its own city coin where the mayor of Miami, Francis X. Suarez, said, look, you know, invest in this coin. We're going to use this to reinvest back into the city in public services, in transport and so on. So it's almost like buying a bond, if you will, to into the city itself. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that if that coin doesn't survive, if that doesn't succeed, then people have put their money into something on the promise of actually something tangible. They're going to see returns for their city. Now, Miami coin is, is really a a dead duck, you know, it's it's sunk so low uh, in the last few months that, that really a lot of the, the momentum has come out of it. Problem is, for a city like Miami, they renamed the basketball stadium the FTX Arena, and now they've got stuck lumbered with this terrible monument to crypto's failed promises, if you will. They can't get rid of the name. In fact, they're desperately trying to, to literally wrench the, the, the letters off the front of the stadium. Um, and I think that all around the US, there has been this reckoning where. You know, we've seen that with FTs, with with, um, uh, with with NFTs, and also with crypto as well. This sort of reality has come in, and also the the sort of sugar rush of the of the pandemic period in America, where so many people who'd never invested in stocks before suddenly became these crypto wheeling dealers. And now, unfortunately, when we see this bit, the, one of the biggest exchanges like this go under, it really spells. I think there's probably a lot of people in America who are thinking, "Wow, I, I got carried away there." Uh- I think there's no question. These digital currencies are here to stay in some shape or form. Obviously, mm. the technology behind them, blockchain, is is fundamental to the sort of overall digital future. Um, but this, but I think this, this recalibration of yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Chris, just taking a step back, this does fit in to a bigger picture about economic uncertainty. Mm. Perhaps some of these people who've sought refuge in crypto or sought opportunity there have been reacting to straightened economic times. If we just look ahead a little bit to 2023, given that you're here around the table in London, stateside, I've spoken to quite a few people and I've said, look, I actually think the US could carry certainly Europe, hopefully the UK, because we lag even behind our European brothers and sisters in in a little bit of its economic slipstream. Uh, The situation doesn't seem as dire on the other side of the pond. Do you agree with that? And what does that mean 
as we look ahead, you know, even towards 2024, Biden's prospects, whatever the GOP is going to decide, do you, do you recognise that slightly less scary economic picture yeah. stateside? Absolutely. Well, look, here's, here's the thing. On, on a very factual level, the, the dollar has done extraordinarily well over the past year. Uh, while other currencies have faltered, the euro, the, the pound and so on, the dollar continues to have a very, very strong presence in, in global markets. And so where the dollar goes, the, the, the world economy leads, you know, it follows, if you, if, you, if you will. So where the dollar leads, the, the, the global economy follows. And I think that we have to put some certain things in perspective, though, where everything that goes up has to come down. So there's probably going to be a, some correction to that in the months ahead. And, you know, as interest rates continue to sort of nudge up slightly, I think that will be a reality, certainly in the next months, in the next few months. But I think to that point of being slightly optimistic about where America is right now, I think, you know, the, the midterms that happened in November were trailed heavily as being having ballot, having democracy on the ballot paper. Mm. And I think actually a lot of those fears about electoral interference, people refusing to concede if they lose, uh, potentials of political violence, all those fears w- did not come true. And America, I say this to a lot of Americans, you know, they have to take some strength in that reality that actually the fear and the pessimism that held around those those elections just simply was misplaced, really. I mean, it, it, when I say misplaced, of course, we should be aware that there's always a potential for things to go wrong. But I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there is a sort of moment of turn happening in America, I think, where, mm. and we see this a little bit in Britain as well, where there is a... If we look across those results from the from the midterms, there is a reje- rejection, if you will, of those with risky promises without much basis and founding. And we started this conversation talking about crypto, if you will, risky promises, uh, sort of, if you will, betting on futures that are very unclear, a little bit hazy. And I think the rejection of a lot of these Trump candidates, Trump pro-Trump candidates, really suggests to me that you feel that what's happening in America, and it's not just America as well, there is a pivot back towards. Uh, Candidates and, and and structures and institutions that have some stability and some structure mm. to them, and I do think that I do think that's going to be the story of twenty twenty three. Looking to the election in twenty twenty four, and it's who can present the strongest picture of stability and economic growth because the headwinds we haven't actually really seen kick in. And yes, there's very high inflation there, but the with the dollar so strong, it does sort of artificially cloud that little bit and I think with now there's going to be the question of certainly Ron DeSantis is going to go for the for the nomination I suspect he probably will get it and I think it's going to be who can make the strongest case economically to continue to uh, for America to be to be strong economically I think that's the point just briefly on this Chris then if, if it's the case that there is a bit of a return certainly stateside to a little bit of pragmatism mm. not rocking the boat um, a little bit of sort of traditional policy if you if you like that suits Joe Biden. And perhaps, you know, one of the criticisms is that he's not very good at articulating what his message is. He's a bit supine. It's all a bit gentle. And mm. he doesn't push his advantage to the public. But maybe that's actually what the public does want to hear at the moment. They don't mind that he's just a safe pair of hands. They'd rather do that. And actually, he can leave DeSantis or Trump or whoever it is on the GOP side to make their pronouncements and try and get this sort of rampant discourse going. And he can just keep a steady hand on the tiller and not do a great deal. Could that be the best course of action for him? No, I think that would be, would be the worst course of action. I think the, the thing that he has to do now ahead of 2024 is he he has got to improve his own messaging about what about the successes that the Democrats have had while he's been in power. You know, with, with holding on to the Senate and also having a slightly bigger majority now in the Senate, he's going to now be able to enact more, get more bills through the House, more politics to happen. Um, but, you know, when we went into those midterms, so many Americans were so 
unaware of the two big bills that had gotten through that did have major implications in terms of, you know, helping to push a green economy, also creating jobs, uh, electrification, good stuff, infrastructure rebuild, all this sort of thing that is very, very important. But he's been his own worst messenger for it. Now, when you've got Trump, who's a very chaotic character to go up against, then actually his sort of reticence a little bit worse because he seems a little bit more in control. He seems a little more... Trump is, will do everything he can to say, I do this and I'm doing that and we're doing that and so on. With DeSantis, he's a much smoother operator. And I think he will be much better at saying, hey, look at where South Florida is. Now. Look at where Florida is right now. Look at how you know, pro-business we've created it. Look at what a mess Democrat cities are. We're not going to do that. We're going to reboot this country. That message is going to be very, very, very strong. And so Biden has got to, in the next uh, couple of years hone his messaging and be clear to Americans about why his rule has allowed politics to happen, allowed bills to be enacted, some degree of bipartisanship to make that happen and invest back into the country. And that's going to be ever more important when you're with a smoother operator like DeSantis. Chris, thank you as always. You'll hear more from Chris Lord uh, this week uh, and indeed uh, charting things from across the pond for us through 23. Uh, right now, let's cross and hear from Monocle's Emma Searle. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. Supporters of outgoing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro have clashed with police in the capital, Brasilia. Overnight, the pro-Bolsonaro protesters allegedly attempted to invade the police headquarters and set fire to vehicles. It comes as President-elect Lula da Silva's election was ratified yesterday. The United States has shipped the first part of its power equipment aid to Ukraine. Last month, Washington announced it would provide $53 million to Kyiv to support the country's energy infrastructure against intensifying attacks from Russia. A Hong Kong court has postponed a landmark national security trial against media tycoon and China critic Jimmy Lai. It's been pushed to November next year as the court awaits Beijing's decision on whether a foreign lawyer can defend him. And the eldest star of BTS has become the first member of the K-pop group to start mandatory military service in South Korea. 30-year-old Jin has begun five weeks training at a boot camp near the North Korean border. Fans have been told to stay away from the site. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Well, let's cross over to Zurich now to review some of the day's newspapers. Juliet Lindley is standing by in Seyfeld in Zurich. Good afternoon to you, Juliet. How are you today? It's quite snowy in London. What's the weather like where you are? Snowy here too. Good afternoon from <laughs> snowy Zurich, but it's crispy sunny. Exactly. It's lovely. It's lovely here in, in London town. We're not used to it though, Julia, here, on the, here, in, true. here in the UK. Um, uh, let's see, what have you got for us today? I know you've been uh, perusing the papers uh, where you are. Should we start with something to do with uh, you know a huge name in the, uh, Switzerland's corporate universe? Nestle, what are they up to? Yes, I've been perusing the Swiss papers and as as Ukraine's allies are meeting in Paris to provide urgent aid to help it get through the harsh winter, Swiss food giant Nestle is saying it's digging in. The world's biggest food and bev company says it's pumping $42 million into a new production facility in the west of Ukraine. It's a sanguine move in an economy that the IMF is projecting will decrease by nearly one third this year. Nestle already has nearly 6,000 staff in Ukraine and with this new production facility and small 
believe another 1,500 new jobs should be created. The company says its aim is to create a culinary hub for Ukrainians and the rest of Europe with high-quality products. Now, indeed, the Swiss group is one of the few global companies to be making new investments since the Russian invasion. Now, Tom, Nestle has been operating in Ukraine since 94, and since the war broke out, it says it has committed $50 million in donations to the people of Ukraine. But you will recall that the company came under attack in the media in March amongst calls for it to follow other global companies and pull out of Russia. Now, quick update there. They stayed in Russia, but they're continuing to say that they are focused on essential food for the local population, like infant food and medicinal nutrition, Tom. Uh, Intriguing uh, stuff, Juliet. Let me ask you next about the Italian job, and sadly, I don't mean the uh, classic, the classic uh, English film of the the 60s, nor the dubious remake, but the Italian job, which is, I guess, what many in Brussels are calling this extraordinary uh, corruption case. You've been reading about this in uh, Corriera. Exactly. Corriere's headline, All the Money of the Qatar Case. And all of the Italian media are looking at, of course, the Italian angle because four people have been charged, three of them are Italian, with taking part in a criminal organization, money laundering and corruption in Brussels. So flying high, the flag of the corrupt politician is 67-year-old Antonio Panzeri, a former Partito Democratico, so left of center MEP, who's accused of using his human rights NGO as a front for distributing kickbacks on Qatar's behalf in Brussels. Now, the NGO is ironically called Fight Impunity, and among its honorary members were Federica Mogherini, the former EU foreign affairs chief, and former EU commissioner Emma Bonino. They've both stepped down. Now, through his NGO, Panseri apparently distributed luxury gifts and bribes to politicians and non-politicians who could steer decisions at the parliament in favour of the Qataris. Now, when Panseri was arrested at his home in the Belgian capital a few days ago, 600,000 euros in cash was seized. His wife and daughter, who were in Italy at the time, were arraigned simultaneously. According to local reports, his family were reportedly planning on purchasing a ski lodge in the Italian resort of Cervinia, just on the other side of Zermatt here in Switzerland, as well as planning a luxury tropical holiday this Christmas. Um, his alleged helper in all of this was none other than the Italian Francesco Giorgi, whose partner is Greek former EP Vice President Eva Kaili, who's under arrest too. A third Italian who runs the lobby group No Peace Without Justice is also a suspect. Now, the allegations are clearly throwing into question the role many lobby groups play at the European Parliament. And Tom, this week, MEPs were set to vote on a recommendation to allow visa-free travel to the EU for Qataris. Well, that, for obvious reasons, uh, has now been shelved. It's extraordinary and potentially so damaging because I guess we often hear stories about, you know, one rotten apple in the barrel. But this web of interconnected uh, uh, individuals and so many of them, very high profile, you know, long serving individuals, um, it's hugely damaging, isn't it, Juliet? Yeah, and very, very sad. And and as um, Metzola said, you know, democracy is under attack. Uh, let's, though, try and finish on a slightly more upbeat note. We can keep things uh, I- Italian. Uh, you've got something for us, Juliet, which I rather like, um, which has some good, traditional, upbeat, positive pedal power. <laughs> 
<laughs> forget white Christmases. And of course, that is a line you're going to be hearing a lot this holiday season, I suspect. But the citizens of Rome are being called on to do their bit to make this a green Christmas. How? Well, by using pedal power to light up the City Hall Christmas tree, which is being switched on this very evening, Tom. Now, not pedal to the metal, but pedal for those baubles, as the mayor, <laughs> Roberto Gualtieri, has installed six parked bikes at the foot of the tree, which citizens and tourists alike are being called on to use to keep the Christmas tree lit up this holiday season. Mayor Gualtieri will be the first to test the pedal-powered lights at 6.30pm tonight against the backdrop of of not tropical, typical (laughs) seasonal music played by the local police band in Rome. Now, he says it's aimed at, of course, promoting sustainability, energy saving, but also well-being. Meanwhile, cynics just down the road are already grumbling about another initiative of Rome's Green Christmas Brigade, and it's the solar-powered lights decorating the main shopping street of Via del Corso. Apparently, the panels are too ugly. Well, I guess something's got to give somewhere, right, Tom? <laughs> Probably. Uh, is this what they mean when they're talking about a new economic cycle, Juliet? Exactly. I like that one too, Tom. <laughs> uh, Juliet, wonderful stuff. Thanks for joining us. As always, that was our good friend Juliet Lindley joining us on the line from Zurich here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. Now, Britain's rate of unemployment has risen again. The number of vacancies fell back further in a sign of a weakening jobs market. That's according to recent official figures and in European markets today, cautiously higher as global investors await the latest US inflation data and hope to see signs that this ongoing inflationary pressure may be easing. Let's unpack this now with Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor. Good afternoon to you, uh, Victoria. Let's start right here in the UK. Um, Figures that are somewhat alarming. Yeah, we had the UK unemployment rate out this morning for between August and October, and it worsened slightly to 3.7%. Interestingly, job vacancies, which have been at historically high levels because of a labour shortage in the UK, have started to fall. So that seems to reflect the uncertain economic outlook, with businesses becoming a bit more cautious about their hiring plans as we head towards what's likely to be a recession. And then another interesting part of the report was the data on wages because we saw that once inflation is accounted for, average pay actually fell by 2.7% versus last year. And that really underscores why we're seeing so much industrial action across a whole host of different industries in the UK at the moment. Um, Victoria, I don't know if you were listening at the top of the programme. I was talking to our US editor, Chris Lord, and asking him about the slipstream that the US economy could provide to uh, to Europe, uh, to the languishing UK as well. Um, mm. I guess across European markets, if we look at them, there, there is an eye always on the latest data out of the US. Is this because you know that is the key market and could be decisive in terms of uh, offering a bit of uh, optimism into 2023? Well, I think the US is important firstly because it is a key trading partner to the world, Europe and the UK, um, uh, specifically the UK um, as well. But also the reason why there's so much focus today on this US inflation reading is because of what it might mean for the Federal Reserve, the US central bank's interest rate decision. Its meeting kicks off today. We'll get the decision tomorrow. And other central banks around the world often look to the Fed and take their cues around how concerned uh, the Fed is about inflation and then kind of have a read across in terms of what other central banks decide to do. So um, we're looking 
looking at a potential 50 basis point increase from the Fed in terms of um, interest rate moves higher to try and combat inflation tomorrow. But then on Thursday, it's the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, which will also make their decisions. So they will be paying close attention to the Fed. Uh, And just briefly, Victoria, if we kind of look ahead more broadly just into 2023, obviously we're in a bit of a a crunch uh, time of uh, crisis. There's a great deal of concern in a number of markets. It it may seem facile sort of compare and contrast, but is there a feeling that the UK is, for a combination of reasons, in the worst position uh, of certainly the big players within the European geographical area? Well, uh, economically speaking, the US sorry, the UK does look quite weak going into 2023. It looks as though we're poised for what could be the longest uh, recession since records began. So that is considerably worse than some other European economies and then the United States. But if we're talking about UK markets, a lot of companies on the FTSE 100 are actually quite outward looking. We've got um, the big oil companies like BP and Shell, which have done very, very well this year on the back of rising oil prices. We've also got some big, heavy hitting banks in there Mm. um, that tend to do well as interest rates rise. So economically, it looks as though the UK is in a pretty weak position, but markets not necessarily worse than others. Yeah, intriguing stuff. Uh, Victoria, always good to hear from you. Thanks for your time today. That was Victoria Scholar joining us here on The Briefing. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity, and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online, and of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, For a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. And finally, from Europe's mountainous peaks to its Arctic frontiers, our correspondents have been dispatched to snowy destinations to bring you an on-point selection of cold weather news. Well, here to warm the cockles, I'm joined by Monocle's design editor, Nick Manis, uh, to tell us more about the design column and pages specifically within Alpino. Is it a brilliant newspaper, Nick? Oh, Tom Edwards. Uh, I love being on air with you for that for that reason. Uh, just the, those beautiful wordplays of yours. Uh, it is uh, an absolutely brilliant newspaper. This is what, probably one of my favourite things to make through the year, uh, which, you know, given that we produce 10 magazines a year, I probably shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> Don't this say is, your this is, It is just such a fun format to have a, a, a newspaper that you can read over the holidays, uh, you know, covering all our, our, our usual uh, topics. So, you know, you've got affairs, you've got business, you've got culture, but obviously the best section. 
section and my favourite section. Controversial. Is the design Tell section. Tell us about what is on the beautiful pages. Uh, well, Tom, do you think you could see yourself maybe going on holiday somewhere in Switzerland, getting up into the Alps, you know, maybe having some time with the family by a fire? Is that, is that something that would appeal to you? I mean, what would appeal is probably doing that holiday precisely without the family, yeah. but go on. Uh, well, I mean, the, 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 my, my question still stands in terms of is, is, is it an appealing place for you to go? Oh, Let's say it is. Wonderful, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sen- simply sensational. We, we've picked um, three uh, different cabins in Switzerland that you can actually go and stay in. Uh, beautifully designed. There's there's a new one from Hildebrand Architects in uh, in Zurich, uh, and they've designed uh, a, three, a series of three cabins at Lake Blausey, which is one of the only private lakes in Switzerland, which means it is impeccably maintained. And that's saying something in a country that already has impeccably maintained lakes. Um, and what they've done is they've they've really you can see it there. They've really smartly worked the uh, the cabins in amongst the trees, in amongst the existing landscape, and it really does immerse you in the forest. You can see these you know big floor to ceiling windows, uh, which really have this this outlook onto snowy peaks, uh, which you can see there out across the lake. Uh, and obviously the, the ultimate result is is, is an environment that is incredibly relaxing to be in. Uh, so we, we, we've got exclusive access to those. This is the first time that's gone into print and, and the people that do pick this up and maybe uh, even book a stay there will be some of the first people to stay at these beautiful cabins. There's a pull quote here, Nick, that I can read that uh, includes this phrase, somewhere between elegance, authenticity and preciousness. They could be describing some of Nick Manisa's shirts, could they not? It, it really could, and thank you for bringing that up. I've got my lovely Christmas, uh, my, my shirt for the Christmas party tonight uh, all picked out. I can only say it's very floral. Yeah, and that's okay. I feel like we need some brightness in this gloomy time of year. Oh, yeah, possibly. Uh, what else have you got for us so, in these pages? I mean, there's, so there's another two cabins in there. There's another one uh, that uh, you can go and stay at that has been designed by Caruso St. John in a small village. There's a cultural agenda attached to that, so you can go and see some artworks which are also shown in the, in the ground floors. Uh, we've got a great interview you uh, with the CEO of Living Devani. Uh, Carola Bestetti talks about, you know, I, I don't think any of the furniture industry could have picked uh, it to really boom uh, over the last two years. But ultimately, that's something that we all know has happened as a result of, you know, essentially people spending more time at home, re- reassessing their, um, you know, their, their decisions and, and the objects that they're surrounding themselves themselves with. And they've, they've ultimately gone out and purchased more. What's funny is you, you might think that that was going to slow up, but Carola's saying their growth is actually continuing. People have basically continued the trend of being more aware. And I, I think essentially everyone's just continually upgrading their home. Which is funny because, as you say, you think that might uh, fall back once people spend a lot more money on travel, for example. But I guess once you start to bring a new kind of intentionality to your design decisions, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to stop, which is good news. Exactly. I mean, I, my home is, is actually the same. I bought a new uh, rug uh, earlier in the year and then obviously out on the weekend uh, saw another one that was a slight upgrade and I went and purchased it again. So I think it's a habit that we're going to find ourselves getting into. Um, another one I, I wanted to quickly talk us through is a new uh, showroom uh, designed by Kengo Kuma in Vals, which is very famous, a very famous Swiss town for the for the thermal bath there, designed by Peter Zumpfer. Uh, and Kengo Kuma's designed a new showroom for Truffer, uh, which is a stone company. They supplied the stone for the bath. Uh, but what what they've done is essentially created, a, a, a rather than a typical showroom where you come in and you look at stone samples, it's not very inspiring for somebody unless they're actually a builder going to go and go and use the stone. They, they've, they've designed a showroom that will function as a cultural centre and a cultural hub Um cultural hub for the town as well uh, rather than having simple stone samples they also their, their samples are actual objects you can buy so you can buy a, a truffer coaster uh, which would you know certainly if, if we're talking about upgrading our home I'm sure you could up, upgrade your coaster game I'm, I'm just guessing I, I need to change my coaster game up 
So 100% net. You're, so that, you're not wrong. That's an option there. Um, and, and there's plenty of other brilliant stories that, that our readers can leave through. There you go, readers. Get stuck into the Alpino. Uh, you can buy it right now. Uh, head to our website if you want to find out more information. Nick Manise, thank you very much. Thanks to, to our producer, Tom Webb, and our studio manager, Christy O'Grady. The briefing's back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon here in London, 1300 CET. I am Tom Edwards. For now, it's goodbye and thank you very much for listening.